but in terms of the, the pacing itself, you're not going to see a 70.3, you're not going to go out and suddenly do a lot of punchy riding and like really accelerate, decelerate. Um, you should kind of keep that same even keel. That Triathlon Show 131. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode we discuss pacing on the bike with Ryan Cooper, founder of Best Bike Split, chief scientist at Training Peaks and a world leading expert on the physics of cycling and how it translates into practical pacing advice. Many of you are probably already familiar with Best Bike Split, and if you're not, we'll talk a bit more about how you can use this software in the interview. I really, really like it myself. I think it's incredible. And you can sign up for a free account, which already gives you many great functionalities to really help you bike better, pace better, and ultimately run better off the bike as well. If there is a bit of a background noise now in the intro and the outro of the episode, not during the interview, that's because I'm again recording while traveling. I'm now sitting at an airport cafe, heading back to Finland for a week for my sister's graduation for from high school, which is um, a big thing in, uh, in the Scandinavian countries at least. Uh, so uh, congratulations to her and I look forward to seeing her and my family again. But uh, yeah, let's uh, not waste any more time on chit-chat. Let's thank our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. And as a regular listener, you already know that Precision Hydration helps you optimize your hydration in training and in racing for you individually. Because everybody's sweat sodium content is uh, individual. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And you can take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com. It's just a short, simple quiz to find out how you should fuel. One thing that I received quite some questions about recently is how do you rehydrate after exercise? You may know that when you exercise, you can only absorb around about one liter per hour of fluid, but your sweat rate can be significantly higher than that. So you will have a net loss of fluid in your body. And long story short about rehydrating, you'll want to drink 1.5 times the amount of fluid that you lost net uh, because you will lose some of that rehydration fluid through additional sweat and urine losses. And to reduce these losses, you'll want to take in plenty of sodium with that. So as an example, even if I fuel a workout with uh, the pH 1000 electrolyte drink, the 1000 is, means that it's it's just a certain strength of milligrams per per liter of fluid uh, but i'll rehydrate with a stronger more concentrated ph 1500 500 to 1000 milliliters of that and then the rest of my rehydration fluid will be just plain water and this is especially important when i want to recover quickly that i'm really particular about rehydrating enough and taking in that sodium all that Triathlon Show listeners can get their first box of Precision Hydration product for free by going to precisionhydration.com and using the discount code that Triathlon Show, all one word, all caps. Now let's move on to the interview with Ryan Cooper. Today's guest on that Triathlon Show is uh, Ryan Cooper of uh, Best Bike Split. Ryan, how are you today? I'm doing great. 
Brilliant. Yeah, I'm looking. I've been looking forward to this uh, for quite some time since uh, I heard you actually first on the Trainer Road podcast, I think. And uh, I've been using Best Bike Split on and off myself, and really, really like it. But uh, I'm not like a super big user of it yet, so it will be interesting to hear more about about that and about pacing in general, whether you use Best Bike Split or not. But uh, first, tell us a little bit about Best Bike Split and how it works. Sure. Um, so Best Bike Split, uh, kind of originally, as we conceived it, was an app to help mainly triathletes and, and time trialists plan and execute race strategy. So the idea was, if we looked at a course, we looked at the significant um, elevation changes or gradient changes, and looked at the significant direction changes, could we take that information about the athlete, their bike, kind of their aerodynamic profile, uh, and then pull in information about the wind and road conditions and plan out a strategy for an athlete to basically get the biggest benefit for their power output. So the idea was if you had a goal power or a goal time, we could kind of show you how best to utilize your effort across the course. So can you give some very simple but specific examples? So if if it's not clear yet for somebody, how would a person actually go about using it? If they just sign up and they have a race, how would they benefit from Best Bike Splits? Sure. So um if you, if you sign up and you have a race, first we kind of walk you through setting up a profile. So we ask for some basic information, your height, your weight, um, your FTP, your training altitude, um, just to kind of get some information about you. Then we drill into um, what kind of bike you have, the type of wheels you'll be racing with, the tires. Um, and that gives us some information, uh, some basic information about your drag, at least from a you know high level, super high level perspective, um, and then you can search for your course. So we we try and crowdsource all the the courses on the system um, in terms of your specific race course. So you can search for that, and then um, if it doesn't exist, uh, you can use a program like Ride with GPS or Strava uh, to draw the course and then upload it to us. Um, and then once you, you have that kind of information and in, then you can go and create a, what we call a race plan, um, select your bike, select either a power target, normalized power target, or, um, a goal time. Or if you kind of use advanced metrics, you could target a specific, uh, training stress score TSS. And from that, we take in weather data, um, the course that you you've input and then information about you to plan out your strategy. From there, you can either um, download that onto a head unit um, to actually race with it, or you can pre-train on Swift or train a road um, using those kind of power targets um, beforehand. So you kind of have some different options um, for what you can do after the fact. Yeah, that, that gives a lot of flexibility, which is uh, great, I think, because there are some athletes may know from previous races they can hold this specific normalized power or a specific distance and uh, then they can just set that and uh, assess what uh, time they can hope to achieve on on a different race course whereas for others they might be 
looking to beat, let's say, five hours for a 70.3 and need to want to get a certain time on the bike to achieve that. And uh, then they'll just have to find out what the power they need to push at different segments of the bike course is. And uh, and even for some, like I, with especially with Ironman athletes, when I coach, we, when we make a race plan, I tend to to give them an upper level of the TSS that they they cannot cross because then it will negatively impact their bike. So that third option is also, although I probably I, I would guess that it's less used than the other two, but but I think it it has a lot of merit to it to to use TSS as well to at least validate the race plan that you create. Yeah, we we definitely we we added TSS um, fairly early on, and for that very reason, for you know every Ironman course or every seventy point three course is different. So if you look at say an Ironman Florida where you have nice and flat, you may be able to break five hours on the bike at Florida. But then if you look at a um, Ironman France or you know or Wisconsin or something that has quite a bit of hills in it, then that trying to break five hours there is probably not wise. Uh, and so you kind of normalize the difficulty of the courses by using TSS as a target. Um, and then it kind of gets, you know, to that athlete, then you can kind of, um, explain to them that, yeah, you may be able to do a five hour here, but it may be better to do a five twenty or a five thirty at a different race course, um, for that same physiological impact. Yeah. That, that's a very good explanation of it. Uh, so, so just to make sure that everybody's on board, you you would get the race plan with broken down into a lot of different segments. Like on this hill, you you are supposed to hold this power, and on this flat, you can hold this power. And it also incorporates weather and uh, wind uh, data or predictions, I guess. So so it's very very detailed and specific in that in that sense. Uh, but uh, if we talk about bike pacing in general, like this is what you would get from a best bike split plan. But uh, how should athletes approach pacing uh, pacing their bike legs of triathlons? Sure. So, uh, I mean, for the majority of people, so there are some exceptions to the rule, obviously, but for the majority of people, um, what we call VI is variability index. It's the difference between a normalized power and an average power. So for the vast majority of athletes, uh, in the vast majority of courses, you're going to want to kind of shrink that gap between those two numbers, which means a kind of more steady state pace. Um, that being said, within that margin, there's kind of a general rule of thumb of a VI of 1.05 so or less. So when you think about that, it's your normalized power is 5% higher than your average power. Um, so within that 5%, there's still quite a bit of flexibility. Some courses, obviously, you you may go higher if there's a lot of climbing. Um, if your gearing is not correctly uh, kind of thought through, then you may have to go higher in that as well. But um, for the most part, your pacing is going to kind of fluctuate in that range. Um, and so what Best Bike Split does is we don't actually give it any hard constraints or hard boundaries on that. And we just let the math kind of work itself out. And it turns out that the math works itself out to where for the most part, um, you know, depending on the weather and the, in the, in the hill conditions, you're going to still be in that same kind of VI range. And so it just turned out that, that that's how the, the math kind of plays itself out. Um, that that is the optimal place to, to kind of keep your, keep your pacing. Um, that's not to say that you should ride the flats and the hills at the exact same power. You're still going to want to vary that and, and maybe push a little bit harder up the hills um, 
and then a you know a little bit harder into the headwind because that that little extra effort there is actually giving you more time benefit than a completely steady state, you know, hold 200 Watts on the uphill, hold 200 Watts on the downhill. Um, if you did 210 on the uphill and 190 or, you know, 180 or whatever on the downhill, there's going to be a benefit to that for the same, same power. But it's, it's in that range. So, so if you have your, your average power or your normalist power might be, uh, 200 then maybe what you would aim to hold on the on, on the punchy hills etc would be 210 and into headwinds but but not much more than that is uh, is that a fair assessment uh, yeah, i mean it depends on the gradient of course so uh you know on a, on a minor hill we kind of break it down we have a what we call a cheat sheet so um we break it down by segment by segment but if you wanted something more generalized then we kind of say okay for this athlete on a one to two grade hill, this is the kind of power on a two to four, on a four to six or a six plus. And part of that's just because the steeper the hill, the more power you're going to have to output just to stay upright on the bike. So at some point, you know, you're, you kind of just have to put out what you have to put out. Um, what we do find and what we see in data files and in regardless of it's an amateur or even a, even professional side, um, that athletes tend to push too hard on most hills. So you look at, you look at somebody and they're, they're going along at 20, 22 miles per hour, you know, 36 kilometers an hour and they hit this hill and they start to slow. Then they, they feel this like need to keep that speed going. So they keep pushing a little bit harder, a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And then eventually they, you know, slow down. But what you find is that the power that they're outputting, trying to keep that speed up, is you know way over what they you know a, a good steady state power level so even if they should go 30 or 40 watts higher um, let's say on a six percent grade and they're looking at 200 watts if they should be at 240 a lot of times you'll see that they're maybe at 260 280 and then they they feel that you know later on in the ride yeah, no, that, that's uh, really good, good advice and uh, good to hear. Like, because it's always useful for athletes to hear what the general tendency of other athletes is, because then that makes you more aware of where you might be making those mistakes yourself. And uh, yeah, I, I can definitely recognize that myself that I, I would fall in that category of, of probably pushing hills a bit too hard. Although I focus mostly on draft legal racing, which is a bit different, but but still. That's yeah. That's quite a bit, <laughs> quite a bit different. Which, uh, but we can we can talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, we we can. But let, let's start a bit with: uh, Are there any specific differences between seventy point three and an Ironman pacing? Like, and anything that you've noticed throughout watching and analyzing data with Best Buy Splits? I, I mean, I think it, it comes down to you know, for that, I, I really do kind of fall back to to TSS a lot. Um, the pacing strategy is not going to change too much. However, um, you know, your nutrition strategy is going to change a little bit more on Ironman. Your percentage of FTP, for instance, will change quite a bit. Um, you'll see a lot of amateurs that there's not that much difference. They may do 75% of FTP for a 70.3 and 70% for an Ironman, whereas a professional may do close to 90% for a 70.3 and, you know, 85, 80, or even, you know, 76% on an Ironman. Um, and it really just, it's race dependent, um, uh, condition dependent. And, but in terms of the, the pacing itself, you're not going to see a 70.3, 
you're not going to go out and suddenly do a lot of punchy writing and like really accelerate, decelerate. Um, you should kind of keep that same even keel. Uh, but since you're out there for two to three hours less, well, probably three hours less um, on a 70.3, then your, you know, your percentage of FTP can jump up a little bit. Your nutrition may be a little bit different than it would be on an Ironman. Um, but your pacing will probably be pretty, pretty consistent, you know, in that same VI range. Yeah. So, so can you repeat those numbers again for the intense factor or percentage of FTP? Oh, sure. So, I mean, I, I think for an amateur, you know, anything you're going to be below 80% of FTP. So for a 70.3, um, somewhere between 75 and 80, whereas for a full Ironman, uh, you're looking at 65 to 75. Now that can change obviously depending on, um, you know, the course and, and how fit you are and, you know, kind of your lead up to, to the race for a professional, you know, you're looking at a 70.3 is going to be 85 to 90. Um, Lionel Sanders will hold, you know, 90% of his FTP for 70.3, uh, no problem, but they're only out there for two hours versus you know, two to two and a half to four into three hours. So um, for an Ironman distance, if you look at, even look at some of the best pros, uh, Jan Frodeno, when he won um, a couple years ago uh, in Kona, he held 76%. I mean, it was the pretty textbook um, Ironman pacing, right? At 76% VI of like 1.02. So, I mean, even at a hilly hard course, he kind of just went right by the numbers and and it played out very well for him. Um, so you, you kind of see different athletes that have different strengths. If your strength is the bike and you know, you can bike and run okay off of it, then you can push that percentage up a little bit, maybe two to 3%. Whereas, uh, you know, if you know you're going to be struggling on the run, you want that TSS a little bit lower. So that percentage may come down a little bit. And do you have uh, do you know off the top of your head, what kind of TSS an amateur athlete would want to cap their 7.3 and Ironman bike legs? At? Um, So I always go back to uh, the old Joe Friel blog post from like, I don't know, he, he's kind of done the how to cheat by using a power meter blog post from many years ago, 2012 or 11, maybe. And um, it kind of has the Ironman times and TSS broken down into strong runners uh, based on time. And so I kind of use that as the baseline. Um And it, it, I think it's different for males versus females as well, just because you may spend a little bit more time out on the course. So for males, I kind of go with the two, 280 is kind of the, the cap on an Ironman for TSS. Um, you know, you can go higher than that. And I've seen a lot of female racers go up to 300 and, and do really, really well. Um, but I, yeah, I kind of go with that 280. For the 70.3, 165 to 170, um, and you see amateurs and pros uh, performing pretty well off of those kind of numbers. Yeah, uh, I think Jim Vance's book, Triathlon 2.0, also has these kinds of numbers. I seem to remember that for for a full Ironman, that uh, it's in the 300 to 310 range for more advanced age groupers at least because that's the the most recent one that i looked up when i was making a race plan for an athlete but uh, so it's a bit higher than the ones you cite which actually in that same book i also think that the intensity factors for uh, 70.3 and ironman pacing were a bit higher but uh, 
yeah, there is variability, and and that's where you need to, I guess, practice in see in training how it feels. Is this something that could be sustainable for for you as an individual athlete? For sure, and uh, yeah, I actually have Jim's book right there. <laughs> I'm looking at it, um, but yeah, it's uh, I. Again, we do see the spectrum from 275 to 310 um, kind of being that range. I tend to go on the lower end just because I think a lot of people, um, they'll overestimate. They overestimate how well they think they can run off the bike. And so a lot of times you'll see, you know, if they're shooting for that high number at the high elite, you know, elite amateur level, pro level, you know, they know their bodies pretty well. As you get down to the more general athletes, um, you know, once they get out there, there's the thing that you have in your head and then there's reality that comes and hits you. And you're like, I almost, I almost rather you have a smile on your face and like be running really well and leave that extra two or three minutes on the bike. Um, you know, you, you lose that three minutes, but you gain maybe 30 by not having to walk aid stations and those kind of things. So, um, it's definitely a, individual range um but yeah i think uh you know as you get more elite you get more in tune with your numbers then you can start pushing those those intensity factors and those uh tss numbers up yeah and what you say there about keeping to the lower end of that range that makes sense from the perspective also that if you can give a power range of let's say 200 to 210 watts for an athlete Mm -hmm. then uh they can easily end up doing 250 to 220 watts in reality. Whereas if you have a race plan that says 190 to 200 and they end up doing 205, the damage isn't quite that big. So, so you have that margin of error built in already. So, so it makes sense from, from that perspective as well. So w- what about, uh, you mentioned there, draft legal racing. Can we use Best Bike for that? Or do you have any guidance on on pacing in general in draft legal racing? So I think in draft legal racing, much like, you know, pure road racing and, and crit racing and those kind of things, it's it's quite a bit different beast. Um, what we use Best Bike Split for there, and, and we've done work with the U.S. Olympic team and the draft legal triathlon team, um, as well as quite a few of the teams at the tour uh, on the road side, um, is we look for places where it makes the most sense to sit in. So you look in, you look for kind of the the places on the course that strategically you would want to not be taking a pull because you want to save your your energy, or where you may see somebody trying to make a break. So. For instance, there could be a place where you have a crosswind to a tailwind. And so if you have a crosswind to a tailwind, if you're looking for somebody to make a break, they kind of have the advantage of, you know, there's less advantage on the draft on the on the cross. When they make the turn to the tail, the chase pack has to work much harder to close that gap. Um, whereas if they turn into a, to a headwind, then the chase pack can rotate at the front and drill and, and pull you back in pretty quickly. Um, so we have some tools that we worked on and, and we have up on the site that allow you to do that. It's a very manual process. You still have to go in and, and analyze it yourself. Um, but basically it, it kind of gives you a, a strategic idea of what the, what the course looks like. Um, and what we what we call our time analysis, the tool allows you to do things like adjust your drag. So if you adjust drag, say, um, you know, kind of 40 to 50% lower, then you can kind of see the equivalent power um, that would be required sitting in the group. 
um, on different sections. Obviously, on the hills, um, then it's kind of just if somebody goes, you you either have to you make a choice to have to go or or you let them go. Um, so uh, there is the strategy out on the race day, but having a little bit better understanding of where the wind is when you make different turns, where you can sit in the pack and, and save energy um, gives you you know, a little bit of advantage potentially going into those kind of races. Yeah. Okay. So, so for people that just want the general pacing advice, you would want to be sitting in when there's a, a headwind and uh, potentially even uh, on a downhill, whatever the, the wind is. And then the place to make a break uh, is uh, when you have a, have a tailwind or maybe crosswind to tailwind. And, uh, and when you're going uphill, was uh, that right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in a tailwind, it's a little, it's tricky to to make a break in a tail just because, um, you know, everybody's going so fast. So the power required to overcome, even with the tailwind, the power to overcome at high speeds, say, you know, you're going 30 miles an hour with a tailwind uh, or, you know, 50 kilometers an hour with a, with a tailwind, um, the extra power it takes to overcome that is very difficult. So if you already have a gap, into the tailwind it's nice because the chase pack has to work that much harder to try and drag in the uh the people out front um so i would suggest yeah if you are going to make a break then try and do it before you know try and get that gap before you hit the the big tailwind and you know even if it's a a nice tailwind into a climb then it then that's kind of nice as well so um but yeah so that that's kind of how we use best bike split. It's not so much for the pacing. It's more for the, um, you know, trying to determine what you think the physiological load is going to be of the people you're racing against. Yeah. And, and the tool in within best bike split for those. And by the way, best bike split has uh, a free level, free accounts for people that want to check it out. So, so that's a really good place to start. And and it's the time analysis tool there that you play around with the different different parameters and, and that's how you use it for for things like draft legal racing and road racing. Right. So that that's um probably the primary way you would use it for road racing. We built we didn't really envision that when we first built the tool. Um originally it was mostly around what if scenarios and uh goal settings. So uh just to kind of give a high level overview of what the time analysis tool is it's uh basically has your race plan and then you can vary your drag your cd your aerodynamic drag your power and your weight and then see the impact of those changes not just at the high level but on an individual section level so for instance if you said okay let me look at this race well for this particular course um you know i've got these five i've got this two kilos to lose. If I lose those two kilos, you know, what's the impact of that versus, well, I know I can increase my power by 3% before race. What's the impact of that? And you can do, you know, any combination of those changes to see how that would impact your race and then where specifically on course it has the biggest impact. So, um, you know, we, we kind of originally developed it as that kind of thing to give the user and, and, or, and or a coach ultimate control of like what factors are influencing this race the most. The outcome um, was at the tour tour de France uh, two years ago, um, several teams reached out to us and they were using it specifically for different stages um, to say, Hey, on this kind of climb, 
what kind of power, you know, let's up the power for this specific climb and then see what the, you know, power to weight impact is um, for, you know, a Demoulin versus, you know, a different type of rider. Um, not that specific one, but, you know, if a bigger power rider versus a very small climber, what kind of power differences do they need to have to kind of uh, limit losses and those kind of things? Yeah, so uh, I think it's a brilliant tool, as you say. You can do what if scenarios and uh, and prioritize your next steps. Is it to try to lose some weight, or try to gain power, try to improve aerodynamics? And uh, that's a great segue into actually discussing uh, for for triathlon and and I guess mostly for for non draft racing and seven point threes and Ironmans in particular. What have you seen to be the relative importance of these three aerodynamics, power, and and weight? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think for ninety-five percent of triathlon courses, at least in the United States, uh, we we try not to. <laughs> every triathlon course in the U.S. seems to be pretty vanilla compared to uh, you know pretty not a lot of climbing, pretty straightforward. There's a few different, you know, there's a few that that have it, um, but so for ninety-five percent of those courses, uh, aerodynamic drag is is kind of the biggest. Um, the biggest factor that we see. So, um, in power, of course. So, you know, you trade off those two weight because there's not a lot of climbing in the courses that we have here tends to be, uh, one of those things where people pay attention to it a lot. And, uh, they're always trying to lose weight off their bike or off these other things, but really, you know, the, the time is probably better spent, um, focusing on, you know, improving your drag numbers, meaning, uh, getting in a more aerodynamic position, getting a good bike fit, um, you know, making sure that your clothing, we, we find that clothing is a big impact on, on drag. Um, so making sure that, you know, you see a lot of people using the longer sleeve tri suits now, and that does make a, a pretty big difference in, in terms of, um, your drag. So, um, you can kind of think of it this way for physics wise, the faster you go, the more impact drag has. So one is exponential with speed, whereas the other one is linear with speed. So weight's linear with speed um, uh, in terms of yeah rolling resistance. As you start to go uphill, there's a crossover. So um, once you hit a little bit below maybe 20 kilometers an hour, um, then the weight part starts to take kind of a bigger uh, priority on uphill sections. So there's a... There's a speed and gradient where uh, where the gravity, you know, is kind of starting to play a much bigger role. Um, and so that's around 20 kilometers an hour. Before that, you know, you are higher than that. You want to make sure that your um, your aerodynamic drag is, is kind of the forefront of, uh, of thinking. Mm. Do you happen to have uh, some numbers, some example in front of you, or do you have best bike split open so that we can kind of play around with uh, what improving aerodynamics, improving power, and improving weight can do just to illustrate it? Sure. I do happen to have it open. <laughs> so, for instance, uh, if I just look at Kona, because that's a good course that has you know significant uh, amount of climbing and some, you know, big weather and other things like that. If you're looking at somebody that's got a normalized power of 195, somewhere around that area. Um, so they're, they're doing, you know, 190 average power across the course. You can look at an average, average position triathlete would finish, you know, in, in over five hours of so five, 
15, 520, somewhere in that range. Um, and that's around a 70, 72 kilo, uh, 73 kilo kind of rider. Um, so if you drop, let's say 3%, so let's two kilos, let's say you drop that off, you're only looking at a benefit on that course of about a minute 30. So, I mean, a lot of athletes, I don't know that they could even drop two kilos and, and still be in a healthy range, um, especially if you see the people at Kona. Yeah, there's not a lot of weight to drop. Um, but conversely, if you, uh, if you kind of optimize your aerodynamics and, and just to throw out some numbers and um, try not to get too technical, um, CDA is, is coefficient of drag multiplied by your frontal area. So what the wind sees, basically the CD is the shape part of your body where the A is the area. So the, the kind of just what the wind sees versus the shape and how the wind reacts to that body. Um, and so the numbers, the kind of range of numbers that you see in triathlon are somewhere between 0.23 um, and point, you know, 0.3. So 0.3 is kind of a high position, you know, back mid pack well mid pack age grouper kind of a comfortable position if you will whereas a 0.23 would be more of the professionals you see a um, um you know so you see a jan Frodeno or you see uh a josh amberg or somebody like that like they're they're very low very you know tight very aerodynamic position so if i go kind of from that spectrum and i say right in the middle a 0.26 most athletes can get down to a 0 0.24, 0 0.245 pretty easily. And so if you're looking at a 0 0.26 to a point, 0.26 to a 0.245 on that same Kona course at the same power, you're looking at a 640 to seven minute. So, so more, more than five minutes more to gain compared to losing two kilos. Right. And, it, and it's really not that hard to do to get into those positions. So, you know, it takes some work. You have to get used to riding in that position. And what I like to tell athletes is you could have the most perfect aerodynamic position in the wind tunnel and it looks amazing and you're a point two or whatever else. But then if you're only in it for 25 percent of the time on course, then it's not doing you any good. Right. So the there is that comfort versus uh, comfort versus aerodynamic you know, trade-off that you have to get to. And so it just takes time to work on that position over time. Um, and so that kind of gets you into that, you know, once you, once you work on it over time and you, you get what I like to call like, do you look more like a bullet or do you look more like a barn door? And the more you look like a bullet, <laughs> the faster you're going to go. Um, and so you kind of, you start to get yourself into that more compact position. You, you get used to riding 95, you know, percent of the time in aero. And then you could use a tool like best bike split to say, Hey, if I'm going to get out of aero to stretch or do whatever, where's the best place on course to do that? So you can adjust your drag and say, if my drag is super high, uh, where am I losing the, the least amount of time for that, for that sitting up and stretching and those kind of things. Yeah. And, and what about if we manipulate power from the oh, yeah. 195 uh, normalized? How much power do we need to improve the normalized to gain the same amount of time as we did by sure. dropping CDA from uh, 20, 0.26 to 0.245? So you would need about 5% more. So is what it's looking at. 
And that would so, be uh, like 10 watts or something. Um, that is, let's see. Yeah, almost, yeah, right at 10 watts. Okay. So you're looking at, and that's 10 watts over five hours, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's, a, it's a lot of kilojoules, put it yeah, that way. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of CDA and aerodynamics, that's also a feature that you have in Best Bike Split, the aero analyzer. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so this is a beta feature that we, we rolled out, I guess, almost over, yeah, over a year ago now, last April. Um, and what we found is when we're the hardest thing for anybody, everybody kind of knows their FTP, everybody's got a power meter. So they've got good, you know, idea of what their power is. You get on the scale, you know what your weight is. CDA is one of those things that it's so difficult to measure, um, outside of a wind tunnel, um, that, we wanted to give athletes and coaches a way to estimate their CDA a little bit better than what we had in the past. So we started off with kind of these drop downs. Where do you fit? Are you an elite time trialist? Are you a mid packer? And that kind of gives you a, a baseline. And then we'd adjust it by the type of wheels and things that you had. Um, from there, we went to a fit based calculation where you use numbers from your bike fit and that kind of gave you a little bit better estimate of, of where your drag was, but we wanted to get, uh, you know, more refined because it does impact your, your plan and your, your estimated time so much. We wanted to make sure that the estimate that we gave was, was as close as we could get without, you know, coming out and getting you in the wind tunnel or measuring you outside or something like that. So, um, so we came up with what we call the aero analyzer and what it does is you upload a race file and I suggest a race. Um, if you go do a, um, test run outside, then make sure you have your full race gear and, you know, try and do at least a 15 to 20 kilometer ride where you vary speed a little bit, uh, power and speed, uh, every couple minutes. And what it does is it breaks down your ride file and attempts to, uh, pick out what your race aerodynamic number would be. And then what, what we call a relaxed aerodynamic number, which would be more of a climbing position or something when you're out of your aero position, you know, what do you look like? And so we rolled that out and, and in conjunction with, um, some wind tunnel study we did with United healthcare, uh, cycling team. And so what we did is we go to the wind tunnel go outside and actually do the right of the rides and then compare those numbers. And what we found is that in general, uh, we could get within one to 2%, um, given good data from the riders. And then when we were off by fairly large, you know, significant amount of percentage, so 10, nine, 9%, what we found is that what they look like in the tunnel and what they look like out on the road was completely different. So they were holding one position in the wind tunnel when they, you know, head down, completely tucked. And then when they got on the road, their heads up because they want to see where they're going. And so they looked, if you looked at images or videos, they were completely different outside than they were in the, in the tunnel. Similarly, um, a couple of riders uh, wore different, they wore a speed suit in the tunnel. And then outside, uh, one wore kind of a more thermal, it was a little chilly, so he wore a thermal suit that was flapping. Um, and you could tell a significant difference between the speed suit in the tunnel and the the kind of flapping in the breeze suit outside. So yeah, well that's that's brilliant and that gives uh, athletes a way to 
to get get a handle of their aerodynamics and and start using by getting the more accurate race plans by by knowing a little bit about how aerodynamic you are um any final advice on anything that we discussed today like pacing or aerodynamics uh, or anything really based based on what you've learned over the years with uh, best bike splits um yeah i mean i i think like um beginners especially I, I, what we see is and it's kind of interesting the the more advanced you are and the 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 more you've raced um you kind of naturally find this rhythm and and if we compare a plan to an athlete that that's been racing for a long time if we look at a pro time trialist or something like that what we see is that they naturally already do this you know this plan so you you look at you know somebody that's been racing for 20 years and and you go and you say you overlay their their actuals to the to the plan and you say wow they follow it almost perfectly without ever having looked at it um it's once you start to look at athletes that are you know newer to the sport or um you know they've been doing the sport for a while but they're they're not at that that elite level that you really start to see like that's where the huge benefit is is for it in terms of pacing strategy. Um, it's great for anybody that wants to look at times and wants to kind of come up with a with a general you know plant race plan um, and kind of get an idea of what what happens from one course to the other. But the actual you know raw pacing, teaching somebody to pace early on, then that's something that they start to learn and it, it becomes ingrained in their their kind of normal race day uh, preparation. So um, I think that's originally who we, who we really built it for. And uh, it's just nice to see when people actually execute it. Uh, and then they come back and say, Oh man, that was perfect. And I had, you know, a great race. Not only did I have a great bike, but I had a great run after the bike. And that's what we really like to hear is that it's not just about the bike for triathlon. It's about the whole race. And so if you plan the bike correctly, then at the end of the race, you can have a really, you know, you're having your your best race and best run off the bike is kind of uh, the thing that we get the most excited about. Yeah, and, and pacing is such a critical part of endurance sports. So you have a lot of guys that are not necessarily the most talented athletes, but they're really good at pacing and racing, and uh, that that's what makes them world class. And even if it's uh, making them top at the age group level compared to other potentially more talented quote-unquote athletes than themselves if you can pace well then then you have a big upper hand against the rest of your competition so and best bike split definitely helps athletes do that so any final words on uh, best bike split uh, in particular and why and who should give it a try well, we want everybody to give it a try, <laughs> but uh, just to some heads up on some things that we're working on now, um, you know, one of the things that we that we found out as we've been doing this is that um, you look at how bike manufacturers kind of make their equipment and they they have a range of people that they're they're basically targeting. And what we find is that the lower power athletes um a lot of times they can't follow a plan that has a low VI just because their gearing ratio just doesn't exist. Um, they either need to be on compact rings and they're not, or they need to have, you know, a much bigger cassette in the back. So one of the things we're starting to look at is how do we incorporate gear ratios into planning and can we suggest, um, you know, maybe equipment changes uh, going into a race and then having some input to put a minimum VI, for instance, if you know 
someone is not going to pedal on the downhill and they're going to be coasting a lot. Um, you know, can we build that into the plan and then subsequently show them the impact of that? So, um, you know, if you get better at descending, here's the kind of time savings you can get on this type of course. And so, um, the final piece of our original puzzle is to then kind of expand upon the post-race um, analysis. So being able to take your race files and then have that enhance your individual model so that the next time you run a course, it ha- it knows things about how well do you take turns, how well, uh, how good of a descender are you, um, more information about your aerodynamic drag when you when you tend to sit up versus you know kind of when you're you're holding in and start to point out areas that you may want to work on so um, that's kind of the next phase of our big puzzle and so uh, we're shooting for q3 release of that before kona so um yeah that's something for hopefully for people to look forward to and, and enjoy very cool. Yeah, and, and I have to plug your your Kona predictions that you have been doing uh, every year for quite a few years now. And th- those are always really fun to follow. And uh, you predict what uh, some of the pro athletes are going to do. And then uh, we can watch and see what they actually end up doing. And uh, yeah. it's, it's really good what you <laughs> with the predictions that you do. So, so Yeah, some of it, it's so interesting. Kona is is by far, we use that as our baseline test course for pretty much most things because it is so difficult for, um, in terms of weather forecasting and things like that. It's very, uh, if, you know, for people that aren't familiar with the island, it's, um, it's got these microclimates. So, uh, several times in the past few years, what you'll see is that you'll have this mild kind of headwind on the way out. And that's why it looks like a bunch of people are kind of lined up in a big line is because you have this mild kind of headwind going out. And so nobody really wants to put in a hard effort to, to kind of get away. Uh, you make a big turn up Javi, which is the climb to the turnaround. And now you have a different headwind that's blowing much harder. <laughs> and so now you have this really strong headwind and as the day kind of goes on, the 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 kind of wind starts to clock around. And so on the way back, the slower you go out, the more headwind you have coming back too. So you kind of go headwind to headwind, and then the wind's clocking around and you have a headwind coming back. Um, and so it's it's always a very difficult uh, course to to kind of model that out. Last year was a was an aberration, so they they never got the headwind coming back, and so um, you had these all the huge crosswind headwinds didn't show up last year, and so you saw the impact on the time, um, you know, going from a four twenty four eighteen kind of time range to a four twelve. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I don't think we'll see any uh, uh, any more records falling there unless the the wind can uh, kind of play nice again. Yeah, yeah. Well, who knows? We we will just have to wait and see. Uh, but uh, let's now wrap this up with some rapid fire questions that I want <laughs> you to answer in in just one sentence or less. And okay. the first one is: uh, What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to cycling, triathlon, or endurance sports? So I go old school. I still have it on my desk. It's called Bicycling Science. Uh, this is the third edition. Um, it's, I mean, it's probably 1999, 1998, but it is everything that you've ever wanted to know in detail about the physics, 
the physiology. I mean, just kind of it, it breaks down bicycling into uh, very, <laughs> you know, the very, very low level in the weeds details. And what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Uh, it's got to be aero helmet. It just looks so cool. Anytime you see somebody with an aero helmet, you go, man, like the first time I saw one, I go, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> some, some would go, that guy looks like a douche. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. But to see it, but then you look at it and you go, you say that until you put one on, then you go, man, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Who's somebody in uh, cycling, triathlon or endurance sports that uh, you look up to and admire? So I've got so many, but I'm going to say... Um, uh, there's a coach who's a former pro cyclist, Ben Day. Um, he coaches some triathletes and, and a bunch of cyclists now. But uh, there was something he said to me last year, and it just kind of it stuck with me. And it, it's something I, I hope we can build off of. But he said, you know, as coaches or as high performance people, uh, our lives are spent swimming in numbers. But he goes, but the performance so often is in between the years and how you can react to it. And that like just, it just stuck with me. It's like, yeah, everybody, you get these numbers, you get all this stuff, but if you don't have it, you know, in your head and you don't have the plan and you don't know how to react to different things and you're, there's no way you're going to perform up to your abilities. That is true. What was the name of the coach? I, uh, uh Ben, Ben day, Ben, but why? Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, that's about wraps it up for this interview. So, uh, for listeners that want to check out Best Bike Split, it's on bestbikesplit.com. And do you have any social media accounts that you want to plug here? Um, sure. I think uh, Best Bike Split on Twitter is our main kind of outlet for social. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think on the on the Twitter is kind of how we get most of the information out. Okay, thank you so much, Ryan. This has been uh, really, really great uh, talking about pacing, aerodynamics, and uh, best bike split. It was uh, a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed that interview. My main takeaway here is that uh, really the big mistake that many age group athletes make in their racing, especially long course non-draft, is that they have way too many occasions when their power goes way up even if it doesn't feel that much because there are short bursts. But this is not the optimal way to pace any race. I've made quite a few race plans in Best Bike Split for myself and also for athletes that I coach. And when you look at it, you'll be surprised to see that usually you have very few occasions when your power goes even just a little bit above threshold. Usually it, uh, it stays below that and well below that depending on the distance of your race, of course. So the call to action here is to go and sign up for a free Best Bike Split account, add your profile, your bike and the goal race course, then create a race plan and see what your ideal pacing strategy for that course would be. Also use the time analysis tool to see what impact changes in your power, your aerodynamics or your weight might have on that bike split. That will be very insightful. And uh, it was, I had a funny, uh, funny incident here with, uh, when I did a race plan for uh, an athlete that I coach, Adam, down at the training camp in the Algarve when we looked at his Ironman 70.3 race plan through Best Bike Split. 
and we use a time analysis tool to change his weight and uh, or see what would happen if he, he lost some weight and, uh, and we saw that uh, well the change in time was really minimal on the bike that is so so he finally said that well for that I'm not even going to bother trying so <laughs> that's uh, that's quite an, it can be very insightful when you learn to see that uh, in biking and most Ironman courses and uh, 7.3 courses they are relatively flat so changes in your power and your aerodynamics definitely trump changes in your weight. As usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com. Leave any comments or questions there on that show notes page. And one more thing that I want to mention is that if you missed last episode, it was a case study with David Nichols on how to qualify for Kona. And uh, I got a lot of really good feedback, so, so I'm very thankful for that. And if you want to get on the podcast as a case study, you don't need to be qualified for Kona. You can be a beginner. That's totally fine. We need different sorts of uh, demographics, triathlon demographics. Uh, definitely send me an email at michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a k and uh, yeah tell me that you want to get on and tell me a little bit about yourself and we'll set it up finally please 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 keep spreading the word about the podcast by telling your friends emailing your triathlon clubs I would do whatever you can to help spread the word it's uh, really really important to get the word out there and uh, make uh, more listeners find out about this podcast and another great way to help with that is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or on the Apple podcast app or any podcast app that you use and uh, you can also leave go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate if you're not quite sure how to how to do that i've written some instructions there on on how it all works so i really really appreciate it if you take just a minute to uh, to leave a review it would really really make my day finally thank you to precision hydration for sponsoring this episode you can find them on precisionhydration.com and they can give you electrolyte products to help you meet your individual sweat sodium content and sweat and sodium losses through sweat in your training and races you can get your first box for free when you use the discount code that triathlon show all one word all caps at checkout thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon <laughs> <laughs>